We're in the book of Acts for, what, six or seven weeks now. We're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. We'll spill over into chapter 7 during this scripture reading. What, didn't we give you just a one-verse reading a couple weeks ago? So we can do a little more today. All right, here we go. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of them, who had belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and others, those from Sicilia and Asia, they stood up and they argued with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, as well as the elders and the scribes, and then suddenly they confronted him, Stephen, and they seized him and they brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. I, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The word of God. You can be seated. You almost got the next verse. So I have one favorite game my entire life. I have one favorite game. Uh, Those of you who play games, I don't know if this is on your list at all, but from the time I was a little child, I have loved Name That Tune. I have loved it. The reason Name That Tune works is because you all kind of share a playlist, right? My idea of a great worship service, whether you're watching online this morning, and happy birthday, Facebook campus is two months old today. Happy birthday, Facebook campus. Whether whether you're in the sanctuary or watching online, um, listen, my idea of a great worship service would be that we would come and do this, but that we would also play Name That Tune every Sabbath. You don't like this idea. I'm waiting for you to, only two people are nodding their head. Here we go. You get three or four notes. And I don't know what the playlist is, but remember, we're young and old and We're from all places around the world, and we're in the sanctuary, so we'll keep that in mind as the guides for the playlist, all right? How about um, three notes? Right, you got it, and then you have to sing it. Great. What a great way for us to do praise and worship, Luke, right? Okay, let's do another one. Because remember, I could do this for the next two hours, so don't mind me. Let's start here. Ready? Oh, I gave it away. You get three notes. Yeah.
like our amens. We're going to do one more. Um, three notes. I really want a hard one. I'm, my mind is working. Oh, this is easy too. Right. I think this is my idea of church right now, and then potluck will be in about 45 minutes. I have loved to name that tune my entire life. I don't do the one, the, there's a version on, on TV right now. I'm not so good at it because I don't know the playlist so well, right? It's music from times and spaces and locations and music we weren't allowed to listen to when I was growing up, so I'm not so great with name that tune on TV, but name that tune in church. If we play long enough, I'll tell you what number in the hymnal the song can be found. I'm weird that way. So listen now to what happens when we do improvisation on a tune. The reason name that tune works is because there's a shared understanding of how the song goes, what it's supposed to sound like. There's a melody that we measure against. There's a standard. Oh, we recognize Amazing Grace because we know that song. But when improvisation happens, right, which is, by the way, how we get jazz music, when improvisation happens, when we go off script or off page, when we start ad-libbing, when we wander into a new space, when we're fully doing improv, people get a little worried. So listen to the improvisation of Stephen this morning in Acts chapter 6. This is my idea of what he's up to. He's standing in a group of very diverse people. If we missed you last week, please grab it online. We know people have come from all over into Jerusalem, and they've brought with them their varied lives from home, their languages, their cultures, their traditions, their rituals, their gods, their economies, their politics, and they're now in a big pile in Jerusalem. And Stephen, Stephen, we heard of him last week. He's one of these deacons that was selected last week because the Greek-speaking widows were not getting enough to eat. So they elect some Greek-speaking community members to help with the problem because nothing about us without us. Remember last week? Stephen is that guy, a deacon. But the text also says he's full of grace and wonder and does many things. That's code work for he's got the Jesus life down pat. There's healing and hope embodied in the life of Stephen as he moves around. That's our guy for today. So he's standing in the middle of a group of people and they begin to interrogate him according to the text. This diverse group of people. None of them can stand the wisdom of Stephen as he starts to talk back to them. This is where the problem starts. By the way, it makes no one popular. No one can withstand his wisdom. This is the kid who gets the highest quiz score every single time. This is the kid who knocks the rest of us, blows the curve, right? This is Stephen. So he keeps talking, and it makes the people irritated. So they instigate charges against Stephen, and they, the text says they rile up a crowd, and they go and tell on him, and they bring him, and they put him in front of the religious authorities. 
Stephen, they say Stephen is speaking untrue things. He's speaking against our ancestors, against Moses. He's speaking against God. He's speaking, and they cry out and complain. Stephen, uh, if by the way it sounds familiar, they also put Jesus in front of a crowd, and they also trumped up charges, and they also got the crowd to crucify him. We don't have to read to the end of the episode then to know the end. (laughs) Spoiler alert, this doesn't end well for Stephen. Well, that's how it started. Stephen finds himself before the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the religious people, and the question in Acts 7-1, Stephen, are these charges true? Which is really to say, who in the world are you? Who let you into this conversation? Where did you come from and why are you here? That's the subtext. Stephen, are these charges true? Stephen now begins to answer, brothers and fathers, listen to me. He goes back at the beginning of the story with Father Abraham. The God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia before he left. This is Genesis chapter 12. If you were to flip back in your book, he's reciting a story from Genesis 11 and 12. And he goes on. Stephen will go on, which we won't read all of it today. You know it's going to be a long sermon if you start at the very beginning of your story with Father Abraham. He goes on and on and on and on. You know how long the longest sermon in the United States lasted so far, according to the Guinness World Book of Records? How long would you stay here listening to one of us? The Puritans listened to 90-minute sermons. That was the ritual every Sunday in the hundreds of years ago. 93 hours is the longest sermon recorded so far. Stephen's not quite there, but he's long-winded. He goes and he goes and he goes. It's easy to skip over these speeches, friends, in the Bible because we're ready for the next exciting adventure. Who's going to get beat and who's going to jump on a ship and who's going to stand in the middle of the city and do the next thing? It's easy to skip over these speeches in the Bible. But if you'll pause with me and if our attention will allow, Stephen is going off script. The improvisation of Stephen takes the community to a new place and he begins to build his argument. This is how he does it. With about 30 references from his Bible, he crafts his argument. And by the way, he gets a little mixed up with timelines and scriptural references, but this isn't the first time someone has trouble quoting scripture. So we're not gonna get too worried about that with the Stephen story. He sketches out this map of divine space. When he goes back to Father Abraham, what he intends to tell the people is, let me tell you what God has been up to. And so just imagine that the sky in front of Stephen is like this big whiteboard as he begins to move in ancestors one at a time. He starts with Abraham. Abraham, that's right, in Genesis 12, he's the one who wandered in the desert for a while. He's the one that had this amazing relationship with God. He moved from piece of land to piece of land to piece of land, and Abraham found God wherever Abraham wandered. And then Stephen adds Joseph to the list. Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. Four separate trips for Joseph back and forth to Canaan. If you read the sermon from Stephen, you'll get all the details. He tells of all of these these trips back and forth. Wandering seems to be a way of life for God and God's people. To this, Stephen now adds Moses. Observations on Moses. Moses uh, also on the move. God's people in Egypt and then Sinai and then in the desert, outside of the promised land, but God seems to always be with them. God does not need a holy zone or a sacred space. Stephen is building his argument. 
Then he goes to David and Joshua and Solomon. Oh, yeah, then we needed a temple because we were carrying God around in a portable tent, the temple. And finally, finally, someone comes and builds us a temple. And now we have a place where God can be located on heaven or on earth. We simply need to go to the temple that Solomon built us. There we will find God the God of heaven whose very presence fills up the sky. We're going to go to a temple and get that God? Well, Stephen says, he, he just falls short of calling it idolatry, something like the golden calf. And then he kind of quotes the prophets. Verse 48. The most high does not dwell in the houses made with human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Silly. What is the place of my rest? That's silly. Did not my hands make all the things? If we can begin to absorb the level of offense that these people might be feeling, filling, if your family bled and died, if it's a personal story, you've been a slave in Egypt, if you left everything, house and home and people and jobs and to get to Jerusalem, the epicenter of your faith tradition, can we begin to absorb how offensive Stephen is sounding right now? And who is this young kid and where did he come from and how come he's messing with our story? Stephen, who goes off script. He tells the religious folks gathered, so don't make the mistake our ancestors made. They rejected Joseph, they rejected Moses, they rejected Jesus. Please don't reject me. Then he accuses them. He, the, Stephen, he kind of was the accused, but now he's the accuser. He gets ugly in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. Now you've become betrayers and murderers. You were the ones that received the laws as ordained by angels, and yet you've not kept it. And, and the crowd doesn't approve of Stephen's version of the sacred story. They mob him. They stone him. The Bible says that Stephen looks upward and something like the heavens opening, he sees God and Jesus and Stephen says to the holy representation something similar to what Jesus said on the cross. Remember when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know. Stephen says, please don't hold this against them. And then he dies. I've long had the understanding that the early movement of Jesus grew because they went out from Jerusalem now. They grew because of this incredible evangelism strategy with deep commitment, with shared vision, with shared resources. They went out every day. They passionately taught and preached and healed. They came home at night. They ate the same meal. They sang their hymns. They had their worship. They shared their resources. They went out again the next day. They did it again and again and again. And this is how the birth of the Christian church happened. And if you and I would have a little more dedication and a little more zeal, the church of Jesus on this earth would look greatly different. Not simply this one. Every Jesus movement, every Jesus church, every Christian church everywhere would look different if we adopted that method. But read Acts carefully. Go back again to Acts 8, verse 1. That day a severe persecution began after Stephen's speech is over. The church in Jerusalem, and, and except the apostles, the church is scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen. The men lamented and wept over Stephen. Those who had been scattered 
preached the word everywhere they went. The Jesus movement is literally on the move, not because they've got a fantastic evangelism strategy, but because they're not safe in Jerusalem. They're on the move because they can't sit still and, be, and stay alive. They're on the move now. The next, very next verses will introduce, be introduced to one named Saul who ravages the people, literally goes into their homes, pulls them out in the street, beats them, takes them to jail. And if you think scenes from around the world today and this week and this month sound familiar, we have a long history of this which is why Christians could be very careful right now about our opinions of what's happening in the Middle East. We're about to meet Saul, who's ravaging the people, so for their safety, they scatter. Not because there's some extravagant plan, exquisite plan, but because they have to. There's so much we could name in the episode of Stephen this morning, and most of that I won't. I simply want to pause over the scandal of a new story. Stephen, in his improvisation, is bringing the people a new story, and it's disturbing. The new story is what troubles them. He stands in the middle of a gathering doing what I'm calling improvisation, and it's improvisation on an old, 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 precious story. He's doing this with a group of people with all their differences and their sameness at the same supper table. He's doing this with a group of people who are holding and navigating their identities day by day by day. How do they remain the people they are and now integrate in the people that God might be making them into? How do they take their identity from home and land and country and priorities and economies and how will this Jesus identity shift and sift to the top? How will God make one people out of many bodies? This has always been what the early Christians were up to. Please notice that it's not some group of evil, crazy God-haters out there who persecute Stephen. It's the people who believe in God. It's the religious folk, the people who have hard-won freedom, the people who have the stories right under the surface of their own skin. Their identity was shaped in foreign places, and now here's Stephen threatening that. The book of Acts reveals not only this Jewish-Christian tension, friends, but it's going to be tension with all the people. Next week, we're going with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and please eat your breakfast before you come to church. Because the tension's not just between Jewish and Christian, it'll be between non-Jewish and non-Christian and the rest of the world. God is making one body out of all of the bodies. It is what I call a massive fusion culture. That's what they have on their hands. So here's a rough illustration, right? Sloppy, but maybe it helps us understand the complexity in the book of Acts. Tex-Mex. We know that food, Tex-Mex, right? It's, um, it's not... Texan and it's not Mexican and it's something in between, right? The way we know what we're eating is if you make your taco with a hard shell and some crumbled beef or impossible burger and you put lettuce and tomato on top, are you, what are you eating? You're eating Tex-Mex because if you make your taco with a soft shell and you top it with cilantro and onions, what are you eating? You might be in Tijuana, right? This Tex-Mex is a fusion, the native peoples in the land and the acculturation of the Spanish missionaries who come somewhere in North Mexico and Texan ranchers kind of get together and they birth a whole food. Tex-Mex, it's a fusion. When you travel other parts of the country and you go out for Mexican food, usually they're going to serve us Tex-Mex and they think we don't know the difference, right? So here's another one. In the city of Riverside this week, 
have not been, but I learned of this restaurant, an Asian fusion restaurant called Kimchi Changa. Has anybody gone here? Kimchi Changa. Just sit for a minute with the name of that restaurant and then yelp it. Good reviews. You've been over by UCR, Kimchi Changa. They describe themselves this way. The flavors of Korea, Japan, China, and Mexico. Like, that's just like the setup of a bad joke. It's like Korea, Japan, China, Mexico went into a bar kind of joke. Kimchi Chonga. Only go to their Yelp and look at what they serve. This is this kimchi burrito. Adam's going to show us. There you have it. All right, everybody's awake now. Everybody's present now. That's, that's the Korean barbecue meets burrito. Sit with that for a minute. How many things can you do with food from Korea, Japan, China, and Mexico? They've got a beautiful menu and a vegan menu too for a few of us, right? There you have it, and I'll see you in a couple hours over by UCR. <laughs> Fusion of cultures. We get it when we look at this food. Do we get it? This is what's going on in the book of Acts. It's a little sloppy representation, but this is the depths of what is going on with the Jesus people in the book of Acts. We can imagine if we go into Kimchi Changa at UCR, we might find family members who own a restaurant who speak a language I don't speak, and we might find maybe, who knows, maybe there's a space in their restaurant, a shrine or a, some representation of their holy one or their divinity. Maybe if we stay long enough and make friends, we'll learn of their values and commitments like all the generations live in one home together. Who knows what we could learn it's a fusion culture, and this is what's happening in the book of Acts. It's a fusion culture, only it's not being done so well and so carefully. The storyteller in the book of Acts will now show us scene by scene by scene as people try to hold their primary identity into this new group identity, which, which they pray will eventually become a Jesus identity. You are one people, one body. You have one Lord, one God, one future, one hope. And there is one spirit doing this work. Willie James Jennings tells us, the church was born in the tight space between faith and fear. I'm gonna pause. Between the tight space of faith and fear, the movement of Jesus came alive and forever lives in that space. Only the Holy Spirit keeps that space from collapsing in on us. So the people of Jesus have this woven through our story. God's making one body out of many bodies. This means the Jesus people ought to have something to offer in our fractured world. This is also why we ought to be careful while we're telling other peoples and countries how to do this because we haven't done it well yet. If we could get this one right, wow, church. You wanna know how to be relevant and useful in the world? If we could get this one right. God is making one people. I'm convinced Stephen's problem is that he is full of grace and wonder and doing mighty things. I think that is his problem. How do I get to that evidence? Because it's after they notice that that they pick a fight with him. It's after they notice mighty wonders and beautiful things that they begin their debate. Stephen, it's not so much the death of a martyr. It's not his death that matters. It was his life that mattered. It was the life of Jesus on the move. If Stephen could have stopped 
short of turning that into a fight, if he could have resisted jabbing and insulting and correcting and condemning, if Stephen could have held his tongue, maybe things would have turned out differently. Before Jesus left the group, remember, he told all of them, Acts chapter one, you will receive power when the spirit comes. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I'm fairly certain the disciples thought there was gonna be a more fascinating evangelistic plan that would make that happen. They would have a strategic plan and, and they would know who their speakers are and they would have the great music and it would all be organized and it turns out they leave to the ends of the earth because their lives are threatened. And them leaving Jerusalem didn't stop their witness. When they leave Jerusalem, God is already where they're going. Stephen, he tried to prepare the people for this. God's never been contained in a building or a place or on a land or on a denomination. God will show up in all sorts of places. God will be in the recovery group and in a motorcycle club and God will be in a parent group and in a block party and God will be in the chamber of commerce and God will be in, at the funeral. God will be wherever the Christians show up. Stephen was trying to caution them. Look, you can't contain God in a building. Get used to it. That's always been our story. So friends, we were out of our building for 15 months. For 15 months, we felt lonely and, and, and out of sorts and, and, and questioned, what are we doing out of our building? But it's turned out that the people of Jesus have always been on the move. And we should think about this because there may come another time when we will need to be out of our building. We left our building not because an empire told us to, but because loving our neighbor and keeping one another safe while threat of a pandemic was on us was the highest value because this is what the people of Jesus do. And wherever we've been the last 15 months, God was already there. So this is now our pandemic superpower. We can do improv. We've been doing it for 15 months. Wherever you've been the last 15 months, God has already been there with you. Stephen, he was expanding the story for them and he wasn't so popular doing it. When a new story is being told, he's telling a new story while the old story is still being lived out. We don't have to be afraid of new versions of the old story. We don't have to be afraid of improvisation in the Christian church. The new stories don't threaten us. New experiences, they don't need to threaten cherished ones. Improvisation, it isn't evil. Last week at the liturgical service at 9 a.m., the organist was playing at the very end, his postlude, and when he got done, I just, the postlude, the whole time I kept hearing a song, hearing a song, I'm like, he can't be playing that song. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. That's all I could hear in the tune from the organ. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. Da, 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 da. Like we're sitting in church and we're, that's she'll be coming around the mountain. It wasn't she'll be coming around the mountain. It was variations on a tune, give me that old time religion. And that's how improvisation works. We actually don't need to be afraid of new stories. And Judaism, it will take them a little while longer until they realize it is telling new stories that help the old stories come alive. They will cherish telling new stories. Improvisation, turns out, for the Jews is a very fine thing. 
We're okay with improvisation in a few areas of our life. Improvisation in technology means I carry a microcomputer in my pocket at all times. Improvisation in the arts, in, in, the, in drama, in the performing arts, that means we have millions of ways to soak up beauty. It seems to be improvisation with our religious thinking, our sacred thinking, our sacred rituals that gets us a little wobbly. Friends, that's what the entire book of Acts will be about. The Spirit is in the people doing a new thing. I accept this morning that this is easier for some of our temperaments and personalities than others. I noticed in our family in the last few months we had a small example of this. A desk was being put together by one person in the house who was reading the rules and another person putting the desk together who was not reading the rules. And the one putting the desk, not, the one not putting the desk together, the, you understand it became an interesting afternoon. Because the one who doesn't need the rules thinks off script all the time. Like the one not reading the rules gets paid to think off script. The one not needing the rules, like hopefully one day in his laboratory, amazing solutions happen because he gets paid to think creatively off script. And the one reading the rules, you think it was me and it was not me. The one reading the rules happens to be a certified public accountant. You read rules all day long and enforce them, right? Beautiful, because the CPA says, I want to read the rules because I, I really want to know how this works and I don't want to miss anything. And the one not reading the rules says, what does it matter if we have a handful of bolts left over when we get done? If the desk is standing, it's great, it's a beautiful desk. He's right. I understand that this idea could be difficult for some of us, and please not, let's not categorize those who need the instructions as somehow rigid and those who are free-thinking improvisationalists as some, somehow the free, happy, holy people of Jesus. Let's not misread the situation here. The book of Acts is going to unfold now as one large improvisational act. They are off script out of Jerusalem. I'm a kid who leans towards that, so I'm not so afraid of it as maybe my grandma was, <laughs> right? I took piano lessons when I was little, and here's the problem. I play the piano by ear. So when they taught me musical theory and they put the sheet in front of my face, I had a hard time with that. The piano teacher had a habit of sitting down playing a song for us before we would select the repertoire we wanted to learn. This is classical training. She would play several songs and I could pick which sonata or which. She learned after six months or a year, stop doing that because I would end up playing the song and never read the music because that's just how I'm wired, right? A little more troubling for my grandma when she taught me hymns. But a lot better with my mother. I remember week after week after week sitting at the piano, and this is how songs would simply come out of me. You would have no idea what I was playing. Just playing with chords. Oh, that's interesting. Nobody knows what song this is, right? 
I'm just making up a song. loved that chord my mother never came to the piano and said you're not getting it quite right it goes like this I am so grateful to have been raised with that because that's what the Spirit's about, friends. You don't need a superhero to come into town. You don't need a team of pastors. The Spirit's alive in each of you and in each of us. Improvisation is your entire life. We are all off script. What is the beauty? What's the, what, why should we not be scared to death of this? Because we're going to do it in a community. And our guiding value will be God is good. And Jesus makes life better. And when those things are happening, the improvisation coming out of your life, if you can see God is love and life is better, then probably the spirit is alive. That's improvisation. Amen.